0: Thank you so much for listening. So, let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are excited to share an interview with Aaron Marie Oslesky, Oles- who is a nurse that was at the epicenter of the uh, pandemic in New York City. So, she has some really interesting information to share. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today, Erin. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for having me, Dr. McCullough. It's been a long time coming.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, you've written a new book, too. What's the name of your new book that describes this process? Yeah,
1: it's The Undercover Epicenter Nurse.
0: Uh, under, that's a appropriate title, The Undercover epicenter, epicenter Nurse. So I'd like to start with getting a little historical background from you. Uh, I thought by we've have posted your initial video that, uh, you, uh, had, that was really well done and, uh, had quite a good response to that back in June, but uh, you know, that was well before your book was out. Um, the, uh, it, it seemed clear from your video that you, I, you live in, in Tampa, Florida now and, uh but it seems like you did not sound like Floridian. I, I detected a bit of a Canadian twinge to your accent and yeah. suspected you were from Wisconsin and you confirmed that and even that we're from Upper Peninsula. So you grew up in the Upper Midwest. Yes. And then from there, you, transist, you, were, you were in the Iraqi war too. So I'm curious if you could describe what transitioned you there and then onwards to nursing school and then down to Florida. So let's get the histo- history first and then we can go into what you, what you did in New York.
1: Yeah, um, so I'm originally, I was born in Bessemer, Michigan, so that's like the UP of Michigan. Um, My parents were raised in that area too, so I'm talking, you know, a town of 2,000, you know, small town, and um, I've always kind of been the risk taker, you know, Um, my parents joke about it to this day, so I kind of ventured out on my own and, you know, joined the, the military, um, when I was 17 and, um, just to explore. Cause I, I always knew that there was more out there and I wanted to just, I guess, immerse myself in a different culture and experience life. So, um, in when I was in basic training, which was, I left in July of 2001, um, that's when September 11th happened. And I, I actually write a lot about my life in my book so people can understand mm-hmm. why I am the way I am and you know, the, what, why I think the way I think, but yeah, September 11th happened when I was in basic training and they pretty much said, you know, listen, you know, get ready cause you're about to go to war. And at that point I was only 18 years old. So, um, Grew up pretty quickly.
0: I can imagine that would do it to you, for sure. Yeah. How long were you in the, in the war conflict? Was it four years?
1: Um, altogether, yeah. I was in Iraq for just over a year straight, and then um, kind of ventured around the, the United States. It essentially brought me down to Tampa, where I worked for a short period at the Special Operations Command and um, ended up getting out and uh, going into nursing, which is what my ultimate goal was, you know, since I was essentially in kindergarten. Um, and so that's kind of what got me here and uh, what essentially brought us down to, to Tampa.
0: Yeah, I was curious how you got there. So it was the yeah. military position. So mm-hmm. we, we both migrated from the Midwest down to Florida for different reasons, but I think it's a Really, in my view, uh, one of the best states to live in, in the United States. Uh, anyway, I want to go back to 20 years ago before you actually uh, enlisted. I was sitting at my desk when I was still treating patients and at the time I had a subscription to the print version of JAMA. And there was an article written by Barbara Cartwright, Wright, who was an MD, PhD. And it went over the statistics of death rates in the United States. And I was astounded, the, 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 and it had, a, it had a benign grayish type headline, nothing major. But I read the, read the article and I realized, oh my gosh, if you add the numbers up, doctors are the third leading cause of disease. And I created that headline 20 years ago in July of 2000, and, 2000. Um, and that actually took off as quite a meme and you know, spread over the whole internet. You might've even heard of it before. And, it, you know, this is conventional medicine. It is, it, it, it is well-documented, clearly, that their errors and mistakes alone is the third leading cause of death. That is egregious enough, but what has, it, it, it has gone exponential since that time and actually been validated. And your experience in New York really is an amazing testimony to what has happened. Mm-hmm. How people, how clinicians are essentially getting away with murder. So we're going to go into the details because it's quite a story. So I'm wondering though, if you, you were, so you, you left the military, you got your nurses training and you were, and you've been a nurse. I want you to pick up your story after you finished nursing school and then lead us into the thought process that, that prompted you to go to New York to, uh, the Bel- uh, in queens was it the elmhurst hospital mm-hmm. there which is a public health hospital i mean were, were you just volunteering or did you have some idea that you were going to uncover some nefarious deeds up there what what, what was the story behind
1: that mm-hmm. um i'm gonna go back really quickly just to touch on um what you were talking about with medical air and being the third lead. <laughs> oh. absolutely so We go, I mean, I'm sure that you did. And I know that I did go into this profession to help people and it just as a new nurse out of school, um, you know, usually most nurses start out on like a medical surgical floor in a hospital, which is, that's where I began my career, um, as a, as a registered nurse. And, you know, I, it did not take me long to realize that we're literally just pumping our patients full of medications. Most of my job was morning meds, afternoon meds, night meds, 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 meds more meds, more tests. And I've always kind of had a passion for, you know, the ne- more of a natural uh, approach to health. Um, and it was kind of devastating to me to realize that I wasn't really helping these patients. I was contributing to the problem. And so I've always kind of had that mindset, you know, as a nurse that how can I get these patients, look through these meds and, you know, talk to the doctors and advocate for them to get them off of all this. And, you know, I I would hit a lot of roadblocks. And so I ended up um, going to work at a private practice where doctors were more concerned about, you know, not so much profit, but the people. And um, so I've always kind of continued along those those lines. And so flat, you know, uh, fast forward to to this year, um, we were essentially laid off from our jobs, you know, in Florida, we did it right. I mean, we didn't ban any of the alternative treatments. Um, You know, they kind of left it up to this, you know, individual hospitals to make up their own mind. So that's why we were very successful. Um, whereas New York was not. I didn't learn that right away until I got there, you know, so.
0: Wait, wait, wait. Were, you, were you, you said you were in private practice or a, uh, did you transition back into the hospital setting? Were you still in private practice? Pre- yeah,
1: I actually worked at, I worked two jobs. I've always kind of worked at multiple different jobs at the same time, just because I like, um, I, I like to keep myself uh, entertained, I guess. I get bored of the same thing over and over and over. So I've always kind of held two, two nursing jobs. And so, yeah, I was working at a hospital here. Um, you know, so I did go back into the hospital sector because my point is, my point of view is like if, if I'm not going to be there to be able to advocate for my patients in a way that puts them first, then who is? You know, so... <laughs> Some of us have to, we have to be able to like, try to fix the broken system. So, yeah.
0: All right, so uh, let me just finish up. I, I forgot the full story on the, the article I read by, written by Barbara Cartwright, who is an MD PhD at Stanford. And the, the final part of sharing that story is that, the ultimate irony is that she died of a medical mistake. Essentially, uh, a, it's not just a mistake, but, uh, a, a co- complication of a legally prescribed drug. She was given Plavix for some type of prophylactic uh, DVT pro- pro- prophylaxis and she died from complications. So it is, a, it, it is ironic that the physician who is exposing this actually dies from the system. So, so you have this penchant, this uh, leaning towards understanding this at a profoundly deep level and you were practicing both in private practice in a hospital in Florida, one of the best states in the country, with respect to their ability to uh, provide appropriate care to the, to, the, to the patient. So what motivated you to go up there was there just a, I'm just curious was it just this desire to have another uh, life experience or what was there, was there any other reason for it
1: yeah I mean I couldn't figure out why New York was struggling so much. And I guess it's just kind of in my personality to, you know, go where the help is needed. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, the opportunity presented itself. I talked to my, you know, boss, my director at the hospital and they're like, are you sure? <laughs> you know, cause most people are, were scared, you know, and. Well, I, and
0: when you say by opportunity presented itself, do you mean that there there was requests from New York city because they were being overwhelmed with cases up there for, for nursing uh, staff from other States to come up and help them?
1: yeah they were in in desperate need of nurses, so you know they were calling it the the front lines the epicenter this is where everybody was you know just dying left and right, but you you saw the the trucks you know outside of these hospitals filled with bodies and then like you know i it can't be any worse than what I've already been through in Iraq, so you know put me in the game so um, yeah, I, I accepted a travel nursing job, packed my bags, and was out the door in two days. You know, kissed my family goodbye and hopped on a plane.
0: And then, uh, when when was it? Is that May of this year?
1: Um, it was in April.
0: April. So, okay. yeah, yeah, April. That was and early on. April. And how, how I, I don't have access to the statistics now, but where was that in the course of the pandemic? Was that the height of it? Was it right before the height? It was pretty close to it, If it wasn't at the height, right?
1: Yeah, it was um, a little after the height, but it was still pretty, I mean, we were, every single one of my patients still died. You know, it was still extremely packed in these hospitals with pretty much every single person on a ventilator.
0: Okay. So you were you were at the epicenter of the epicenters, the place in the world actually that had the highest one of the highest concentrations of patients dying and number of people dying. So and you were there in the middle of it. Because Elmhurst Hospital was probably one of the the uh had the largest concentrations of COVID patients. And mm-hmm. maybe you can share the details on that because I'm not sure of the specifics of the New York system.
1: Yeah. Well, one of my first red flags is when you're going into war time, which they consider that, you know, frontline line war, um, I expected to get to work immediately and uh, quickly learned that we were going to just sit around for three days waiting for an assignment. There was nurses that got there before me that were sitting around for 18 days. getting <laughs> So my question is why weren't they using their, you know, utilizing their resources, complaining that they didn't have enough help when we got I'm not talking a hundred or 200. I'm talking like 1000, 2000 nurses sitting around in New York waiting for an assignment. So that was very confusing to me. Um, You know, if, if indeed this was, you know, essentially, you know, a war zone. People are literally dying left and right. Why aren't they using us, utilizing us? And and that was that didn't make any sense to me. But I finally did get an assignment, and they put me at Elmhurst Hospital. It was just completely random. I could have went anywhere, but that's where they they picked for me to go. And 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 so I went, <laughs> and um, I got there, and literally it took me a shift, 12 hours, to realize that this is absolute chaos. And not because we didn't have enough staff. We were well staffed. It was because just nobody cared. I literally felt like I was living in the twilight zone. And just knowing what I know about our, our system anyway on a good day, this was just absolute just negligence. Yeah, yeah, your
0: your experience highlights one of the greatest flaws in the entire system, and even in good times, yeah. <laughs> the best of times. You know, like 20 years ago, when I read that article, uh, it, the 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 system is responsible for maybe the majority of deaths in the country, if collectively, because just be, if you include their ignorance of basic nutritional principles. So, but clearly when you go into the hospital, you are at great, great risk. And I've interviewed Dr. Andrew Saul in the past, who's written actually a book on this. And we've had, I think, two interviews, helping people understand that one of the most important strategies if you or anyone you know goes to the hospital, is you have to have an advocate. Ideally, that is a close family member who's with you, depending on your circumstances, around the clock to make sure mistakes don't happen, because they will happen invariably invariably will happen because of of, of the... Uh, attitude that you described—people weren't caring there. It's not not you or some of the other nurses, but you know the medical staff typically gets into this, and, and I'm not blaming them. It's just the reality, and as a result of that, the stakes are made. So, that the, the complication, which just greatly exponentially exacerbated this whole process, is that family was excluded. You had no advocates other than the staff there. So, why don't you expand on that? Because to me, that was probably the worst catastrophe of this that resulted in much of this abuse occurring because they had no advocates there.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And, and on top of that, they created a liability and free environment.
0: Ah, yes.
1: So now you have a liability free environment where everybody knows that no matter what I do, I'm not going to get in trouble for it. We have no family around Putting us in check, you know. No, you know, on a good day, and I'm sure there's a lot of your viewers that have had their own struggles inside these hospitals. On a good day, when they're allowed in, I mean, I've seen it. You know, working in these hospitals, and um, so now you have no family. You got a liability-free environment. You got doctors and nurses that at that point just didn't care because everybody was going to die anyway. So what's the point? And then, you know, you have everybody on a ventilator. So these patients can't even speak for themselves. They're at the hands of whoever is taking care of them at that point. And it, that's why I, I, you know, how do you sit by and allow this to happen? It's, I don't know how so many people knowingly knew this was going on and just choose to remain quiet. It's just really sad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. At the time, I don't think it was well understood that ventilator management for this illness was not a good choice and it was really the kiss of death. Uh, I, I I believe I don't practice in the hospital or even in an office setting anymore, but it's my understanding that that's not, uh, being be, be, being considered the standard of care at this point, so it was, I mean, you you cited some incredible statistics. I think there was only one person in your your four weeks at the hospital that survived being put on the vent, and that's because they they self extubated.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: was a kiss of death. I mean, you, if you were put on the vent, you were dead.
1: And they knew that. Um, when I first got there, this was well earlier April, and Within the first week I was there, I started videoing um, after speaking w- with an attorney in, in New York, and I okay.
0: have a. Wait, wait. Why don't you go? go? I, I'm really curious as to that process, and I just don't want you to skip over that. I want you to go into more detail because it really was quite a decision that you made to do this. I mean, there was, you yeah. said there was hundreds of other nurses just in that hospital alone, and thousands within the city, but very few made the decision to actually video record what was going on. So can just help us understand your thinking process that led you to that action.
1: Um, I actually don't know if I've ever talked about this the first day that I was there with actually anyone. So you're the first. <laughs> um, the fir- very first day I was at Elmhurst, it, like, like I said, it didn't take me more than a shift to realize what was going on. And I got back to my hotel room and just broke down in tears. And I'm like, I don't even know what to do right now. Like I couldn't even believe it. And so I actually have, you know, a lot of nurse friends and uh, I asked them to just hop on a zoom call with me and I just let it all out. (laughs) You know, like I, you guys, I don't know what to do. And one of them is a nurse practitioner. So she ended up essentially kind of being my proxy she, she did a live video and it went pretty viral. And what happened to her is she got just gas, gaslighted by everybody. She had death threats. Everyone said that she was making it up. So I had contacted an attorney after a few days of seeing what was going on with, with her, just trying to get my message out. And I'm like, listen, no one's going to believe what's happening here because they don't believe her. There was other whistleblowers prior to me that they didn't believe. And I'm like, the only way the public is ever going to be able to, you know, even somewhat, you know, take this seriously and believe what I'm saying and what others are saying is with actual video. And, um, I had already tried to go up the chain of command and everybody would just tell you to just be quiet or you're gone you know, you were considered a troublemaker if you tried to advocate for your patients. And, you know, you were pretty much shunned. So I contacted an you know, attorney after I realized that no one was believing, you know, my essentially my proxy, who is a nurse practitioner herself. So um, even after going up the, the chain of command, talking to, you know, anybody that was in charge, and, you know, it was always, they always were passing the buck to, you know, well, it's not me, it's the next person. It's not, you know, that's the authority. Like nobody had any answers. And, you know, if you cons- were considered a problem child, you know, uh, you know, somebody that's asking way too many questions, then you were sent home. And there was nurses sent home prior, you know, to me getting there for doing the same thing. So why? would anybody do that? And I mean, there's maybe a lot of different answers to that, but ethics essentially just went out the window. And uh, my attorney actually ended up getting me a pair of spy glasses in order to video and they fit in with the rest of the PPE. So it was never really, you know, questioned.
0: Um, how, do, how do those work? Are they, they're lenses that don't have any prescription element to it? and they've got a camera embedded in the frame?
1: Yeah, I didn't even know those existed. So it was <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it, it was really surreal to me. I'm like, is this, is this what I, are we, is this where this is now? <laughs> is this what I'm literally gonna do? And it was pretty terrifying, but at the same time, you know, I'm going in there and looking at these, my patients, like, you know what? You guys deserve justice. And this should have never happened. And I hope it, history never repeats itself ever again. And you know, that was, that was the mission. You know, I, people need to know the truth. And you know, those that thought this was okay need to be held accountable for, for these actions. And in our, in our profession, we're supposed to be there for the patients. You know, we're supposed to act with, you know, integrity and, and compassion. And, and none of that was happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I did my training in inner city hospital in Chicago and, uh, which has major benefits. I mean, you get some really, really sick patients. And, uh, even as a third year medical student, you were delegated a lot of responsibility and hopefully were smart enough to, to get some help when you needed it. But you basically taught you to be a doctor a lot quicker than the regular system would, would typically do you allow you to do, but it became very clear, uh, It was an interesting window into your experience because typically the committed nursing staff knew more than most of the doctors put together because they were in the trenches day in and day out. They knew what worked. They knew what didn't work. And they knew if they were going to kill someone. And I I know I can remember many times as a uh, either a medical student or, or a resident. Where the nurses would, you know, maybe some of my choices, but uh, cer- certainly other training staff, they were, they would correct the mistakes that would, if implemented, would have killed the patient. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just part of the process of learning how to be a physician. Uh, it's an inevitable consequence. But the nurses are typically there to protect them, most of them. Obviously, some have gotten to the point where it's just a job, but that's, you know, it wasn't common from my experience. So I'm wondering if you can share your observations as to the percentage of the nursing staff who felt similar as, as you did versus the, you know the taking the position of most of the physicians? And, then what, I mean, and, and also your comment on the physicians themselves, I mean, what percentage were just doing the job to, to get it done or expeditiously? Or really, were there any physicians that you saw there that really cared for what they were doing and really sought to provide exemplary care to the patients?
1: Um, the nurses, um, and this is what surprises me so much that the majority of us all said the same things. Uh, you know, we, we went to work on a bus and we drove home on a bus. So we were together in the mornings and you know, then we were together in the evenings and this is what we discussed. Like, oh my gosh, like I can't even believe this is how they do things here. And this is, tw-
0: these were 12 hour shifts that you're working.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Every day, every single day.
0: Wow. And, yeah. No, not even a weekend's off.
1: No, straight. I, I've never worked so much uh, in my entire life. Yeah, yeah. That's
0: an eighty-four hour week. That's a double. Those are that's double time.
1: Yeah, every day. Um, for just about a month, straight. Yeah, but you know, and and so we all did say the same thing, and I I actually recorded a lot of those conversations too, just because I don't want people to think like it was just me. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like we really everybody thought the same thing like this is not okay but everybody is so afraid to to say something because you know like for instance i've gotten taken through the trenches with people i mean there's a lot of upset people and they you know try to hurt you and and silence you in any way they can you know i I was fired essentially for for saying anything and we were were
0: fired from your position in new york
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: Not, not in Florida.
1: No, I'm, I'm still employed in Florida as a nurse. My, uh, my mm-hmm. hospital knew about this video coming out before it actually came out.
0: Wait, have you been threatened with your nursing license removal at all?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people gunning for it. You know, they if, if you go against the norm, then you know you're. Know, they, they just try to stop you you know there's there's been petitions yeah.
0: to take my license so yeah when i first saw your video that was the first thing that went through my mind is that they're going to get your license for saying that <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: as a test their strategy they, they they silence the opposition
1: mm-hmm. yeah but um the doctors they're I don't know. A lot of them were residents, you know, they were first year residents and a lot of them have never been at a patient's bedside before. And, and I started out as a CNA when I was 16 years old working in a, in a well my local hospital, I've been at the patient's bedside, you know, for decades and that some of them there, that was their first time ever interacting with an actual patient and just zero bedside manner because a lot of these patients were on ventilators. They just treated them as they were just, you know, something, something to practice on at a human being. And that was very common, very few and far between. There was a really, really good resident that, um, I just really appreciate because he was on our side and he's like, you're right, Aaron, you know, and, but there, they were there was not many of them that, you know, really had that compassion for these lives.
0: Yeah, so I'm assuming Elmhurst Hospital was a training hospital where they, where they had residents, because mm-hmm. obviously private hospitals typically don't have residents. And if they do, they're really severely uh, supervised,
1: mm-hmm. or
0: strictly supervised might be a better term. Uh, so public hospitals are a lot different.
1: Mm-hmm. There was no supervision though. <laughs> there wasn't. Any. I mean, I, I very rarely saw an attending, so it was the residents running these floors, and then it was us nurses constantly. I mean, we couldn't even leave our patients' room because they'd come in there and dial the the ventilators. They'd mess with our drips. You know, uh, we had to end up locking our our pumps because they would just come in and change it. That's unheard of on a on a you know on a normal day. <laughs> you know. You, these physicians never touch our, th- you know, our pumps or our ventilators, you know, without letting us know.
0: So that's just an incredible arrogance. What yeah. do you think motivated this type of behavior that, that they could, that they think they knew better than the, the 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 nursing staff who 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 essentially is responsible for doing these things day in and day out, and they're they're new to the game and thinking that they're going to come up with a better system. And what what, what do you think motivated them to do that?
1: Um, a lot of ego a lot of um, you know they're gonna die anyway so we just want to experiment and see what works and what doesn't um, you know there was a lot of a lot of errors being made and unnecessarily causing a lot of death um, and I, I I don't, I can't explain it. You know, like I said, the liability free environment, free for all, these residents weren't being, you know, monitored by, you know, like, like attending doctors who were nowhere to be found. And it just
0: well, it seems one of the most egregious behaviors was the lack of segregating the as yet to be confirmed cases of COVID that were come as new, newly admitted patients from those who had already been established as being COVID positive. Although in reality, it's segregating them into different rooms or floors probably. I don't know if it would have made much of a difference because they share the same ventilation system. And this bugger of a virus, once it gets into the HVAC system, is gonna circulate throughout at least that entire floor. I I suspect at Elmhurst that the the floors aren't even separated. So you got the entire air circulating throughout the. The hospital, so you got that, that virus going around, so I don't know that it would have made much of a difference. Or, do you have any insights on that? And, no, want to comment on the lack of segregation of the newly newly admitted patients?
1: Um, yeah, no, that I mean, to have it like a negative pressure uh, yeah. room for each individual patient in a perfect world, yeah. But even at the same time, the PPE was just being worn all day long, a lot of nurses weren't even changing it because it looks good. You know, like it, there was just no regulation on anything and, and he, all you needed was one person to, to not do it correctly and you're going to infect everybody. But they were knowingly putting, you know, non-COVID patients with COVID patients on the same floor, in the same rooms. Same uh, room. Yeah. And, and they were ventilating patients that they knew didn't have COVID, but calling them COVID rule outs, you know, maybe this one negative test was not correct. So they had to do but another.
0: Let's stop there because that's, that's uh, an extraordinary claim that they would ventilate a patient that wasn't COVID. This person that was being ventilated, were they highly symptomatic? Were they seriously ill?
1: No, the one guy that I talked about that pulled his own tube out yeah, yeah. He didn't have COVID. Um, what they did is, you know, he, he was a patient admitted for a high blood glucose, um, which is easily remedied, you know, um, but, you know, they ended up giving him a lot of different psych drugs and which ultimately just kept that blood sugar going up and up. And, you know, instead of treating that, they ventilated him, they put him... On our COVID ICU floor, which is unheard of. And then, you know, he's anxious. They have him tied down to the bed in restraints, which makes anybody even more anxious. You can't have any family in there. There's a bunch of nurses telling you to be quiet. You know, anyone's going to fight in that type of situation. You're terrified to be there in the first place. It's COVID. This is the number one hospital that, you know, people are dying at. And, um, I was in there just trying to hold his hand and talk to him, calm him down. And, you know, one of the residents comes in, you know, if you don't calm down, we're going to have to put a, you know, a tube down you to help you breathe. And I'm like, you know, this is when I was just like, what are you doing? Like, he doesn't need that. And I hadn't left from, you know, for the end of my shift 5 minutes and he was on a ventilator when I got back. You know, that right there, that's just negligence.
0: Well, it, it, negligence is too mild a term. Yeah. Now that, yeah. Is, that is reprehensible medical malpractice is mm-hmm. what it is. And that person should have his license removed, but they can't because their liability has been is essentially removed. That, that person should not be allowed to practice medicine.
1: No, it was a female um, mm-hmm. fellow actually. And she's the same one that ordered my other patient To be, for us not to resuscitate him knowing that he was a full code.
0: Yeah. Now, a fellow, for those who don't know, is someone who's completed their formal uh, medical training, graduated medical school, internship, and residency, and is doing a subspecialty in some discipline of medicine. So you would think a fellow would be a little smarter than that.
1: That was the whole, you know, at that point, like nobody really cared. Anymore, they're going to die anyway, and uh, there's no liability. And you know, those are the type of doctors that the the world doesn't need.
0: Yeah, they, and clearly there was a financial incentive for the institution, at least, to be reimbursed at a higher rate for it because of every person, I believe, that was uh, ventilated was the hospital received another thirty thousand, twenty nine thousand dollars. So. Uh, can you confirm that was the the case going on, and, and if the, there was any direct communication between the hospital administration and the, the and the medical staff to incentivize them in any way or encourage them to ventilate more patients?
1: Well, they essentially turned Elmhurst into an all COVID hospital, mm-hmm. so. I think that was pretty much incentive. If you're going to admit somebody, they're either COVID positive or they're awaiting their test results. You know, to, So they would be admitted as COVID rule out, and it was, the hospital would still get the kickback. It was $13,000 to admit a patient to the floor. Some of these people, like the one that was unnecessarily vented, he, he could have went to the ship, the comfort ship, knowing that he, he was negative for COVID. They knew that, but they still admitted him, got the 13,000, and then ventilated him for another 39,000. So this was happening consistently. There's no reason that these patients had to be packed in like sardines when we had like external resources that weren't being utilized. So why? You know, and, and that goes up to the administration um, and, and just really management of the entire system um, maybe it was the financial incentive the part of the, the reason I, I I think it was and um, it, and that's just just people just you know not caring you know and and putting profit over these people
0: sure uh, so you you were there for a month and I'm sure you established some good friendships and relationships in that time. And it's been four months since you left Elmhurst. And I'm wondering if uh, what the feedback you've received from the nurses who are still there, things have changed significantly as a result of your exposé.
1: Um, there was a few nurses that took my side when my video came out. A few of them were our staff staffers um, from Elmhurst. And then there was a couple travel nurses um, that were essentially my mold inside during all this happening. And they, I don't know, chewed me up and spit me out. Most of the nurses were pretty upset. And that, that was difficult because, you know, I knew that everyone felt the same but at the end of the day, a lot of them are, you know, protecting their jobs. You know, if if they agreed with me there, they would also be fired, so. um, The population outside of the nursing community, I would say 90% is appreciative and the other 10% are are not so much. Um, But I personally think that this has had an impact on on the deaths in New York, because after that video went out, and they were essentially kind of outed on their treatment protocols, um, the death rate plummeted.
0: Really? So can, can you summarize how the treatment protocols have changed from this gross medical negligence that was occurring to what's happening now?
1: Um, I don't, I think that they're a lot more cautious about who they're admitting to these hospitals and how many people are there being put on ventilators. Because even in early April when I got there, I questioned a doctor that I also recorded and he admitted that absolutely not one patient has been successfully, you know, excavated. So by that time I got there, every single patient on a ventilator died. And, and... They refused to try any alternative treatments, even though we know a lot of alternative treatments existed, but they, their excuse was that they didn't work. And my question was, listen, if you know the ventilators aren't working, then why not try? It? You know?
0: Well, $40,000 difference.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that's sad. It, it should never this should never have happened. And, and, and it should never even happen on a good day. And we know that happens even on good days.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the tragedy is that hydroxychloroquine most likely would have made a difference. It clearly was helpful in the, the, your circumstances in Florida. Mm-hmm. But there's even better strategies, and some that work like hydroxychloroquine that are, uh, have a similar mechanism of action that are not even a prescription, and they're just a natural supplement like quercetin. Yes. which drives the zinc into the cell. And uh, like HCQ, it has to be used very early in the course of the illness and with zinc, otherwise it doesn't work, but still, I mean, you, so your hands are tied, you don't have to use, you can't use it in the case of uh, in New York, where I think it's still outlawed to use. And But in Florida, they're still using it, though I think, though. It's not been outlawed, even though the FDA has stopped some type of approval rating for it. Uh, some exemption they were given, I think, has been pulled. So, uh, are they using it in Florida to sell HCQ?
1: Yeah, it's not been outlawed. And I think that every patient has a right to try yeah. um, multiple different alternatives. You know, even the high dose IV vitamin C, we know that's been successfully, you know, being treating patients in Asia and some people in even New York when this first started. Yeah. So, why are these alternative treatments being frowned upon, you know, has this, has this caused even, even more deaths? you know, and honestly, government should not ever get involved in the doctor patient relationship. You know, people should be able to have a choice and the freedom to, to be able to have these alternative treatments available to them. If they can save their life, you know, um, it's
0: just the, the autonomy in patient rights has, is just gone. Yeah. Yeah, vitamin C is, Dr. Merrick has established a protocol. I think it's more uh, recently described as the Math Plus protocol because there's other adjuncts to it, which is methylprednisolone or a steroid, uh, thiamine or vitamin B1, uh, the, the vitamin C intravenous, of course, and, uh, and an anti uh, heparin. Is, I think is the age, because uh, mm-hmm. clotting can cause quite a bit of complications in the microvasculature. So it seems to be very effective though. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, but, uh, so uh, the patients in uh, your hospital in Tampa, you, you get receiving that?
1: Yeah, they, the hospital that I, I work at was, was doing is still doing the hydroxychloroquine zinc Okay. protocol successfully early early treatment that was another problem um, they had everybody locked in their homes you know to, they terrified to go to the doctor and a lot of these people and the reason that we're seeing a lot of higher numbers right now is everybody's going back to get the help that they needed very early on and, and not from COVID they're getting treatments that you know from things that you know, everyday things that people are sick from. And they just got sicker and sicker at home. And, you know, obviously now we see, you know, a higher admissions in our hospitals, but it, it's not because of COVID.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah it's crazy. Mm-hmm. The um, So what, I guess, maybe highlights some of the experiences, the most significant reactions to your video that was launched. Uh, since then, the last four months? I mean, what, what are some, some of the most extreme responses and, 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 and uh, both positive and negative?
1: Um, positive, I'll start, because it's always more happy to talk about. <laughs> um, from what I'm, I'm gathering, it's calmed a lot of people's nerves. And a lot of people message me like I knew it, like something didn't seem off. And usually um, your gut is right. And, and, and I think that helped a lot of people just kind of be able to get through this and, you know, understand it and um, take better control of their health because it's really sad that a lot of this media isn't telling people how to prevent, um, you know, getting sick and making sure that your immune system is strong. And um, I think it's waking a lot of people up that which is great we've been working on that for years you a lot longer than I have Um, and also so the negative um, you know a lot of people said that I violated HIPAA that's a big thing Um, but under uh, whistleblower protection um, you know when, when you see Gross negligence occurring and you've already attempted to go up the chain of command like I have um, that that is What I did was completely ethical and um, it, it isn't a violation of HIPAA and we need people to speak out When they see something wrong like that and um, so so history never repeats itself and things like this stop and um The truth, you know, of it is that we can do a lot better job in healthcare in general. And um, without, you know, people speaking up that are on the inside, that change will never happen. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. You can make the same argument for those who uh, were implementing the orders in in the Nazi regime, where millions of humans were exterminated they were only following orders and you know and they 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 couldn't possibly violate the hipaa regulations by exposing us yeah using the justification of rules against it as the excuse for not becoming more violently opposed to it
1: mm. you know it, it just takes one person to speak up and you know since that video there's been a lot more um, coming out and, and being brave and speaking up. And maybe this is what we need. This is the catalyst of change that we've been fighting for so long.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, patients deserve to be treated human, you know, like humans. And, you know, politics and profits and all that should never be placed above human life, ever.
0: An ideal world, unfortunately. Yeah. That reality is quite... Quite the contrast frequently
1: mm-hmm.
0: so um well you you uh, were able to be a significant catalyst to this change this desperate change is needed and exposing the uh, the deception and the the gross medical negligence that occurred and uh in elmhurst hospital and apparently this has been t- toned down quite a bit since your exposé so uh, i want to congratulate you for your courageous behavior and bravery and uh, exposing this 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 problem, this gross negligence that was occurring, and mis- medical mismanagement. Because there's really no excuse for this. Uh, it's just sad that the physicians who were most responsible for implementing these these uh, these deaths uh, these these orders that resulted in patient's deaths unnecessarily are not going to be held liable for this because that's just inexcusable.
1: Yeah, maybe, um, possibly they, they will be, you know, there, there are some clauses in that order that, you know, that gross negligence is liable. So, um, you know, these, these families are, are coming forward and, um, there's a lot of them that are very upset. And so, you know, maybe and hopefully there will be a federal investigation and, and there will be accountability, you know, for these actions. And um, I, I feel that there should be.
0: Yeah, there's no question it should be. The sad reality is that
1: yeah.
0: we are not over this yet. And life is not going to return to normal anytime soon. If ever, I really doubt that we will ever experience 2,000 t- be, uh life as it was in 2019. I I believe it's permanently changed. I mean, just like those of us who travel in the airport, or used to at least, you know, once or twice a month, and you, you, every time you go through TSA, you you just, you know, grit your teeth, and why do I have to endure this unnecessary, ridiculous behavior? Uh, But it's never gonna change. It was done, you know, and it's, I think that many of these, mandates and guidelines that have been implemented are just never going to be removed i'm not convinced that we'll never stop wearing masks or at least in most communities I mean, which is so insane to have to wear a mask outside just, it doesn't make any sense
1: no it doesn't make any sense at all and even they're enforcing children now and that's what really gets me because I have three boys and I do not want them growing up in this type of environment. And how do you fight it? Because there's so many people that are complying with with this and really not questioning things. And it's, you know, it's going to get worse. You know, it really is until people just really start saying no and, um, you know, sticking up for themselves, especially their kids, you know, because. Yeah. it's, it's, it's hard. It's very, it's heart wrenching to watch.
0: Yes. Well, you've done the best you can for them. You're in Florida, which is one of the best States and they have a mother who understands the truth and is not going to enforce any ridiculous requirements on them and, you know, loving and supporting them and helping them understand the truth and, and to sort through the ridiculousness that's being thrown at them. So they'll, they'll survive. Sometimes hardships, make you stronger like like uh you know whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger i think is what Nietzsche is a
1: yeah
0: said a few hundred years ago
1: yeah
0: so anyway any last uh comments you'd like to share with us
1: um no just thank you for everything that you do dr chervaller like you're the pioneer in in my opinion of change and um I've been a big fan of yours for, for many years. So
0: well, thanks thank
1: you for what you do. And thank you for having me on to, to share my story and thank you for the nice blurb that you have on my book.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So your book. The, you
1: know, the Undercover Epicenter
0: Nurse. Epi- yeah. Epi- yeah. Epi- I knew it was beginning something. the Undercover Epicenter Nurse. So we'll have a link to that here and I hope the book does well and it's yeah. an important story that needs to be shared. And uh, really, again, I want to, extend my sincere deep appreciation for your bravery and courage and engaging in this behavior because it's the rare person that will do this as your experience has shown you i mean even though you had the vast majority of the nursing staff agreeing with you virtually no one was willing to step forward and do what you did so and expose this these crimes these crimes yeah. against humanity mm-hmm. so uh it, it takes you know it's amazing what one person can do and you're a great example of what that one person can no, thank you. you. So thanks for all your help.
1: Thank you.